Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello, and welcome to this episode on morality and conscience. So in this episode, we're going to address two questions. First of all, what makes an action right or wrong? And secondly, how do I know if I'm doing the right or the wrong thing? And these can seem like kind of basic, obvious questions, but actually these aren't things that there is a kind of general agreement on. I mean, I think we can all agree, regardless of our beliefs and our faith background, that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Most people, except for like really extreme relativists, will say that, okay, there is right and wrong. There are some things that I can point to that are good, like being kind, and some things that are bad, like murder. But apart from those really obvious examples, there's often disagreement about what actually is okay and not okay. And we only have to glance at the news or at social media to see that people are super divided on these questions of morality. Another area where we're often sort of divided is on the question of how I know whether or not I'm doing the right thing. Because we all agree that there's a right and a wrong, but how do we know who is right and who is wrong? And how can I be sure that I'm in the right? And we could just say, well, you just know, right? Like it's just obvious. You just do the right thing. And in one sense, that's true. Like we all have a conscience and we can often feel it when we're doing the wrong thing or when we're doing the right thing. But then again, I mean, have you ever witnessed an argument between two people on a moral question? If you have, you've probably noticed that both of those people, more often than not, are totally, utterly convinced that they are in the right and that the other person is in the wrong. So I have a lot of friends who are, morally speaking, both very conservative and very kind of liberal minded. And you hear the same thing from both of them all the time. And I do it myself, right? You sort of think, how could anyone else possibly think differently? The right course of action is just so obvious. Okay, so something seems to have gone wrong there. Someone is misjudging the situation. Our consciences can't all be infallibly correct all the time. So yes, the conscience is really, really important. And we're going to talk more about that later in the episode. But our conscience can't just be kind of free floating, right? It has to be guided by some kind of set of objective moral norms. Otherwise, we then just kind of arrive back at relativism and it's just whatever you feel is right is true. Okay, so what are these objective moral norms that guide our actions? And well, actually, the first thing to say before we get into that is that not all actions have a moral dimension. So some actions are just neutral. They're not right or wrong. Like if I move my pen slightly to the left, that's not right or wrong. But some actions do have a moral dimension. And we can tell when morality has entered the chat, when my conscience kicks into gear, right? My little Jiminy Cricket pipes up and is like, I have an opinion about this. (laughs) This is right. You're you should not be doing this. Okay. That's kind of the the flag that tells us that, okay, now I am making a moral choice. So the catechism drawing on the work of St. Thomas Aquinas names three factors that determine whether or not an action is moral or immoral. So the three factors are object, intention, and circumstance. And in order for an action to be considered truly morally good, then all three of those factors need to be at least morally neutral, if not morally good. 
So the object, my intention and the circumstances. Okay, so let's go through each of those. Now, object. Object refers to the action itself, right? The thing that I am doing. So I might, you know, eat wheat bix or punch someone or go for a walk, right? That's the thing that I'm doing. And the first question we have to ask when we're evaluating a situation is, is that object, that action, intrinsically evil? Because if an action is intrinsically evil, then the buck stops there. There is nothing that we can do to turn that action into something good. So for instance, slavery, right? There is no context or intention that would make deliberately enslaving someone an okay thing to do. So for instance, you could never say like, oh yes, well, we've got a woman locked in our basement and we force her to do all the household chores for us without pay, but we only do it because, you know, we really need the help and it's really hard raising kids and, you know, we're very nice to her, right? We, we treat her really well. No, it, it does not matter. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter why you're doing it. You can't enslave someone that's always wrong. And actually, this idea of intrinsically evil acts was kind of demonstrated in the 20th century during the Nuremberg trials when a bunch of Nazi soldiers were on trial for committing murder. And their lawyers basically tried to argue that morality is something that is just socially constructed and it varies according to context. And in the context of World War II, these soldiers had been told by their leaders that it was okay for them to commit genocide. So, you know, we just have to judge them based on that context. And of course, the response to that was absolutely not. Like, it doesn't matter what Hitler said was okay, you did the wrong thing. Okay, so intrinsically evil acts cannot ever be good. So what is an intrinsically evil act? Well, the Second Vatican Council says that anything that is hostile to human life violates the integrity of the human person or is offensive to human dignity is intrinsically evil. So basically anything that directly violates my right to life or my human dignity is intrinsically evil. So some of the examples that Vatican II gives include homicide, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, torture, subhuman living conditions, slavery, and human trafficking. So these are all things that are intrinsically morally wrong. And that's not to say necessarily that the person who does them is always culpable for their actions, but the actions themselves can never be right, no matter what the circumstances are. However, in most cases, our actions are not intrinsically evil. They're usually either morally neutral or morally good. So in moments like that, we have to consider two other factors, and those are intention and circumstance. So my intention is the reason why I'm doing something. Okay, A good intention can turn a neutral action into a good action. So for instance, I eat wheat bix for breakfast. Okay, That's a neutral action. But let's say that the reason why I do that is because I know my sister likes cornflakes and I'm leaving the cornflakes for her. Okay, now I'm actually doing something good. And then on the flip side of that, if I have a bad intention, that can turn even a good action into something bad. So, for instance, we can think of Loki, the god of mischief in the Marvel films. Often, Loki will do things that seem nice on the surface. And in fact, they are objectively nice. They're good things. Like he'll help someone out or he'll do a favor for them. But usually in the end, it turns out that he's actually only doing that nice thing because he's trying to get something for himself. And he usually ends up screwing that person over because he doesn't actually care about them. So his intention is wrong. And in an instance like that, we would look at Loki and say, OK, Loki, you are doing the wrong thing right now. And this is something that Jesus talks about with the Pharisees, right? He talks about how they're all sort of getting around praying and giving alms and doing the right things on the outside. 
but their intention is all twisted up. They're only doing those things because they want recognition. Okay, so that's intention. And then circumstance. Circumstance is the kind of contextual factors that are framing the thing that you're doing. So for example, let's say that you're driving your car and you come to a crossroads and you can either turn left or you can turn right. Now, objectively speaking, there's no moral right or wrong to that decision. But now let's consider the circumstances, the context. Let's say that today is your mum's birthday and she's having a birthday party and you promised you would be there. Now, if you turn right, you'll end up at the birthday party. But if you turn left, then you'll end up at the pub where all of your mates are hanging out. Okay, now we have more of a sense that there is actually a right or a wrong decision to be made in this particular context. There are also situations where circumstances can turn a good thing into a bad thing. So for instance, it's a good thing to tell people that you love them. But if you stand up at your ex-girlfriend's wedding and start screaming, I love you, when she's in the middle of saying her vows, I'm looking at you, Shrek, then maybe that isn't such a good thing and you should have found a way to say it earlier at a more appropriate time. So if you have a good or a neutral object, a good intention and the right circumstances, then what you've got is a morally good action. If one of those three things is bad, then the action cannot be considered truly morally good. Now, there might be situations where one of those three factors isn't necessarily missing or like bad exactly, but it is kind of imperfect. So for instance, say I do something really nice for my friend, like I help her move house and I do it mainly because I love her and I genuinely want to help her. Okay. I've got a good intention, but there is also a tiny little part of me in the back of my mind. That's really hoping that my friend is going to be super grateful and will tell everyone how amazing I am. And then when I die, they'll start my cause for canonization and someone will make a movie about my life. Provided that that isn't my primary motivation, it's just something kind of tucked away in the back of my mind, and it's something that I recognize and I say sorry to God for and I sort of bring to God and try to work on and overcome, then that's okay. The action can still be good. It just might be imperfectly good. And actually, this is quite a common scenario. We're human beings, right? So we're a mix of good and bad. And often we do have a mix of good and not so good intentions. And so we always have to sort of bring our those weaknesses to God and work on trying to kind of correct our intentions whenever we're trying to do something good. So we shouldn't panic if we realize that, you know, there's something tucked away in there that isn't so good, that doesn't make what I'm doing evil. Okay, so we've talked about the factors that make an action objectively right or wrong. But when I am in the moment, when I have to make a moral choice, how do I decide what's right or wrong? How do I assess the object, intention and circumstance and decide what I'm going to do? Well, the catechism describes two things that tend to influence us when we make moral decisions. And those two things are passions and conscience. So the word passions refers basically to our emotions, the kind of movement of our will towards something that we perceive as good or away from something that we perceive as an evil. So the two most fundamental passions are love and hate. And now we don't just mean like romantic love. We don't mean like emotional hatred, like I detest you. What we mean by love and hate is merely that movement of the will towards or away from something. And then all of the other passions like fear and anger and desire, etc., they all spring from those two fundamental motions of the will. Now, passions and emotions, they are not the same thing as conscience. 
And that is really important to remember. And this is something that I think is is almost a bit of a societal problem at the moment, at least in the kind of Anglo-Western world, that we treat our emotions as though they were our conscience, like they are that guiding force that tells us what is right and wrong. So you hear people saying things like, well, as long as you're happy, then you're doing the right thing. Or, you know, just do what your heart is telling you. What does your heart say? Well, that's not necessarily the most helpful way to make moral decisions because my feelings, I mean, first of all, they're completely unreliable, like they change all the time. But as well as that, emotions can only tell me what I want to do. They cannot tell me what I should do. Now, that doesn't mean that the emotions aren't important. It's just that we have to understand what their role actually is, what they are supposed to do in that process of making a moral decision. So the catechism talks about how the emotions are like a passage between the senses and the mind. So my senses react to the world around me. I can see and touch and smell a chocolate cake. And in response to that sensory experience, my passions react. So then I desire to eat the chocolate cake. And then there's a third step after that, right? That desire then has to be brought to the intellect, to the mind. And then I have to assess the situation. I have to decide, you know, does that cake belong to me? Is it good for me? Should I eat it? And that's when I make a deliberate choice. So the catechism says that the passions incline us to act or not to act. And then our conscience makes a rational decision about whether we should or shouldn't do something. So I think I might have mentioned before a book that I really love called The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. And there's this fantastic bit in the book. Fantastic. I've been watching the first season of Doctor Who. Well, the first season, the Christopher Eccleston season of Doctor Who. And I keep finding myself going fantastic all the time. Okay. So there's this bit in the book where the guy and the girl have fallen in love. And this guy is trying to convince the girl to run away with him. But actually, they're both engaged to other people. So it's really not a good idea for them to run away together. And then the conversation that they have is really interesting because it's like a dialogue between the passions, the emotions and the conscience. So it goes like this. The guy, Stephen, he says to Maggie, Maggie, if you loved me as I love you, we should throw everything else to the winds for the sake of belonging to each other. We should break all of these mistaken ties that were made in blindness and determine to marry each other. And then Maggie responds with the voice of conscience. She says, I can see one thing quite clearly that I must not, cannot seek my own happiness by sacrificing others. Love is natural, but surely pity and faithfulness and memory are natural too. And they would live in me still and punish me if I did not obey them. Don't urge me. Help me. Help me because I love you. So this dialogue demonstrates the role of the conscience, but also the way that the conscience is in dialogue with the emotions and the two can be opposed to each other. However, they don't have to be. And in fact, they shouldn't be. And we see this in that last line of Maggie's. She says, don't urge me help me. So she's recognizing that the passions, the emotions can actually help us to do the right thing if they fall in line with our conscience, if they listen to our conscience. So point 1770 of the catechism says that moral perfection consists in man's being moved to the good, not by his will alone, but also by his sensitive appetite. 
So basically what this means is that the process of becoming a better person involves my emotions being educated and kind of falling into line with what I know to be true. So this is something you might have experienced before. For instance, when you've developed a good habit. So say that I decide, okay, from now on, I'm going to get up at 6am and I'm going to get out of bed as soon as my alarm goes off. Now, the first time I try to do that, the first time my alarm goes off at six and I try to get out of bed and my senses clock how freezing cold it is and how tired I am, the chances are that my passions will respond by staging a total rebellion and saying, what are you doing, Caitlin? Get back into bed, right? And then I have to really fight to overcome my passions. But over time, as I continue to do that good thing and I realize how much more I get done when I get up in the morning and how much better I feel when I get a good sleep and I wake up on time, I might actually start to develop a desire to get up early, even if my senses still find it hard. It's not like it suddenly becomes easy to do, but my desires, my passions actually start to fall in line with my conscience. And I end up in a place where I'm like, yeah, I want to get up at six o'clock in the morning because I know it's good for me. Now, we've kind of suggested and hinted at this, but it's important to kind of make a note of it, that the emotions, the passions don't have any moral value of their own. So the Catechism in point 1767 says that in themselves, passions are neither good nor evil. Emotions are morally neutral. The reason for that is that we don't choose our feelings. We don't have control over our spontaneous emotional reactions to things. The only thing that I have control over is how I choose to respond to my feelings. I can indulge a certain emotion or I can try to overcome it, right? And moral culpability only applies at the point where I make a choice freely. And this can be a source of great relief and consolation to us. It's something that often comes up in conversations around like romantic or sexual attraction, because sometimes we can fall into the mistaken way of thinking that it's a sin for me to feel attracted to someone. So for instance, say that I realize I'm super attracted to my boss at work, but my boss is married and I cannot be attracted to him. And I might be sitting there beating myself up saying, you know, I'm such a bad person. How could I have let myself do this? Well, actually, if I'm not actively encouraging or accepting or nourishing that emotion, and I'm actually doing everything I can to try to overcome it, then I haven't committed any kind of sin. And the same thing goes for same-sex attraction. You know, this is where the church would be totally in agreement with someone who says it's not a sin to be born gay. The church would say, no, I know it's not. (laughs) It's the moral culpability only comes into play. Once you make a deliberate conscious decision, this is something I am going to pursue. And in fact, if you bring that emotion to God and you use it to draw closer to him, it becomes a springboard for actually growing in virtue. Then that passion can actually become something really powerfully good. And then the same thing can kind of work in reverse, right? Like sometimes I give too much moral weight to my positive emotions and that can take the place of me actually doing good things. So I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I definitely have before where I'm having like a really good day and I'm walking around sort of thinking like, man, I think I'm a pretty good person. (laughs) Like you sort of think, yeah, I really love others. Like I'm a very loving person. Or I might sort of think like, yeah, I really care about, you know, refugees or the poor or the needy or the suffering. Like, and actually all that's happening is that you have this swelling feeling of kind of general benevolence towards everyone because you happen to be having a good day, right? That does not make you a virtuous person. I mean, those emotions are good, but we need more than just nice feelings if we want to be a good person. 
Okay, so passions tell me what I want to do. Conscience tells me what I should do. But is our conscience always reliable? Can I know for sure that my conscience is telling me the right thing to do or can it ever be wrong? Well, the answer to that question is a little bit complex because on the one hand, St. John Henry Newman says that conscience is the Aboriginal vicar of Christ. So Aboriginal with a small a as in original. So the conscience is like the voice of God speaking in our souls. And then the catechism tells us that when he listens to his conscience, the prudent man can hear God speaking. So our conscience isn't just our brain responding to external stimuli. It's actually that deep place in our soul where God has inscribed the truth of right and wrong. And hearing that, we might think, oh, great. Okay, so surely we can just trust our conscience because that's where God speaks to me. But then on the other hand, we look around us and we can see, hang on a second, not everyone's conscience is telling them the same thing. There's actually a lot of division between people over what's right and wrong. So what's going on there? Is God telling different people different things? Well, It's important to bear in mind that our conscience can be malformed or misguided or even silenced. So you might have experienced this if you've ever gotten into a bad habit. The first time you do something wrong and you know that it's wrong, your conscience really kind of is is sensitive. You feel it and you think, oh my gosh, I feel so terrible. I can't believe I did that thing. And then the second time you do that thing, you feel a little bit less bad. You're sort of like, oh, that really sucks. Damn, I wish I hadn't done that. And then the third time you do that, you sort of think, oh, whoops. Oh, well. (laughs) And then eventually you can get to the point where you are completely desensitized to that bad thing. In fact, you can even get to a point where you don't think there's anything wrong with it. You start thinking, gosh, I don't know what I was so worked up about. There's nothing wrong with this. So that voice of God, the voice of truth in our conscience can become twisted up over time if we ignore it. Or even it might not even be that I'm silencing or or twisting up my own conscience. It could be that the world around me is shaping my conscience. So maybe I've got that little voice that's saying this doesn't feel right, but that voice is being drowned out by my peers or by my parents or by social media, right? And I can end up in a place where I can't even hear the voice of conscience anymore. And then thirdly, we've already said that sometimes we mistake our emotions for conscience. So one red flag to look out for is when we hear ourselves or other people saying things like, I just, I can't explain why, but I just know that this is the right thing to do. If you can't explain why you think something is right, then there is a good chance that you're letting your passions guide your decision-making rather than your conscience. Okay, so if my conscience can become so kind of malformed, then maybe the best thing to do is just to ignore it entirely and find something outside of myself to guide me, right? Like, I, I can't trust my conscience, so you just tell me what to do. Well, that's not the solution either, because if we did that, then we would be sacrificing our freedom, and that would be a violation of my human dignity. So what do we do then? How do we find the balance? Well, let's return to that quote from the catechism. When he listens to his conscience, the prudent man can hear God speaking. Now that word prudent is so important. Prudence has to do with wisdom. It's a kind of like a kind of carefulness, right? Prudence involves spending time thinking deeply, reflecting, seeking answers, talking to people we trust, informing our consciences, praying, bringing our questions to God, figuring out what the church teaches about things and genuinely asking honestly, okay, what is the truth here? 
So listening to my conscience doesn't mean just like knee jerk reacting to things. It means taking that kind of thoughtful, deliberate, honest approach. And if we take that approach, then it's much more likely that we'll end up doing what's right. I will hear the true voice of God in my conscience. So I was in an Uber the other day and my Uber driver was telling me all about how he deliberately only ever watches really superficial movies and TV shows. And he was like, look, I don't want to think deeply. I don't want to have any philosophical thoughts in my head. I don't want to question the way I live my life. I literally just want to watch The Fast and the Furious and be entertained and eat some popcorn and then go to bed. And then it was really interesting because literally in the next sentence, he started talking about how hard and depressing life was. And he was like, you know, we we live in a world where we're surrounded by idiots and people don't know what they're doing. And that's really depressing. And I was listening to that, just sort of thinking, God, it's really interesting to me that you just put those two things side by side. Like you've started by saying that you refuse to reflect on your own life. And yet you're so sure that you're in the right and that everyone else is an idiot. Like, how do you know that you're not the one who's in the wrong? And to be honest, I don't think that this guy was that unusual in his approach. I think this is fairly common among like, especially millennials and Gen Z to have that kind of unreflective knee-jerk reaction to the world. And it's something for us all to be aware of. The Second Vatican Council says that conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. And I find that a really helpful image, that when we make moral decisions, we actually need to reach down deep into that inner sanctuary, rather than just sort of grabbing at the stuff that's sort of floating around on the surface. And the Catechism in point 1789 gives us three kind of rules for life that can be really helpful when we're making moral choices and that should always guide our moral decisions. The first rule is that we can never do evil so that good may come of it. In other words, the ends don't justify the means. The second rule is the golden rule, that whatever I want other people to do to me, that's what I should do to them. And then the third rule is that we always have to show respect for our neighbor and his conscience. So in other words, we should respect the dignity and the freedom of the people around us. So those are some really good, helpful kind of guides that we can use when we're sort of sitting in that that inner sanctuary, that place of conscience. Now, the catechism in point 1790 says that a human being must always obey the certain judgment of his conscience. If he were deliberately to act against it, he would condemn himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I was actually kind of surprised the first time I ever encountered that idea. We are obliged to obey our conscience and we actually need to encourage others to obey the certain judgment of their conscience. And not only do we need to listen to our conscience, we also have a basic human right to obey our consciences. So the catechism says in point 1782 that man has the right to act in conscience and in freedom so as personally to make moral choices. Now, this doesn't mean that there should never be any consequences for my actions. It's not like road rules and traffic laws are a violation of my personal freedom. Consequences are one thing, but it's another thing to actively force someone to behave in a certain way, especially when it goes against their conscience. Now, we've just said that our conscience can get stuff wrong. So in one sense, this idea that we're obliged to obey our conscience can sound like a crazy idea. Like, what happens if my conscience tells me to do something wrong? Should I obey it then? Well, here we need to return to an idea that we've kind of been touching on throughout the last couple of episodes, which is the difference between objective right and wrong and personal culpability for doing right or wrong. 
So if I carefully examine my conscience and I make a judgment and it turns out to be the wrong judgment, provided that I am honestly doing what I think is right. And I think honestly is a really key word there because it's very easy to lie to ourselves and to be like, oh no, this is what I thought was right. But actually I'm just doing what I wanted to do. If I'm honestly doing what I think is right, God is not going to hold me accountable for making a genuine mistake. Now that doesn't mean that the action becomes a good thing, right? The action remains wrong. So we're not relativists. We're not saying that if you think it's right, then it suddenly magically becomes the right thing to do. But we might have what is called invincible ignorance, which means that I didn't know the truth and I also couldn't have known. So this is like the opposite of culpable ignorance, which is what we talked about in the last episode. And it can be really helpful for us to remember when we're trying to discern the right course of action, because sometimes we can get really freaked out about making the right choice. And we put this pressure on ourselves, this kind of perfectionism of like, I have to make the right decision. And if I don't, then I'm going to like go to hell. Okay. We have to remember that God is judging my honest genuine attempt to do good, even if I make a mistake. Now, you might be someone who has listened to this whole episode and thought, well, I actually do all of these things. Like I genuinely go into that inner sanctuary when I'm making decisions. I have formed my conscience really well. And that is fantastic. That's really good. But we also need to remember what the catechism tells us in point 1787, that the education of the conscience is a lifelong task. So it's not just something that I do once and then I tick it off and I'm like, great, my conscience is formed. It's something that is dynamic and is constantly responding to the world around us and growing in perfection, etc. And it takes a whole lifetime to build up our conscience. The other day, um, Pope Francis met with a bunch of Eastern Orthodox priests. And one of the things he said in his address to them, which I thought was really helpful, was he, he was talking about unity, right? Christian unity. And he said, unity is not achieved by standing still. And I think that idea can be applied to any aspect of the spiritual life, right? Including the conscience. The development of the conscience isn't something that occurs through standing still. It's not something static. It's actually something we have to actively participate in and make an effort in. So this is something that I would encourage all of us to do. Like I'm going to certainly do it. Spend time examining your conscience, sitting in that inner sanctuary and thinking about what is actually true? Where is the voice of God in my life? And where do I need to conform myself more to the truth and to my conscience? Okay, so that's everything we've got time for on morality and conscience. And hey, guess what? On the day that this episode will be uploaded, it will be exactly one year to the day from when the podcast first started. So happy birthday to Crash Course Catholicism. Yay. If you are finding this podcast helpful and you want other people to learn about Catholicism, then you can share it with other people or you can subscribe to it or you can leave a review or a rating on whatever app you're using and then lots more people can learn about Catholicism. Yay! Okay, that is everything from me. Next episode, we're going to talk about virtue and sin. Woohoo! Okay, have a fantastic fortnight and I will talk to you soon. Bye! Bye.